Hello, and welcome to Hegel is a Virgo, a podcast about literature, theory, culture, and astrology. So the second half of that Ezra Koenig tweet is once or twice a week. <laughs> okay, I'm Amelia, Taurus Sun, uh, Aquarius Moon, Virgo Rising. She, her pronouns. Uh, the tweet that I've been assigned is, I don't mind if it took you two plus hours to respond to my text, as long as you were in the library researching, drafting, and editing said text. Yeah, that's good. I like a draft. And then we have a special guest. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm Esther. I am a Cancer Sun and Aquarius Moon and a Scorpio Rising. What? Um, and my tweet is the same one as Annika's, um, which I also vibe with, although I probably would include like sweating a lot because I've been oh. drinking a lot of coffee while I was experiencing all these emotions. So, that's, um... <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Nick, you can't pour water on mine. I, I didn't realize you could hear that. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll put it back. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. Stop. 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 Sorry. Um, not your nice white shirt. It's going to get all stained. Uh, From Brooks Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> How's everybody doing? I'm fine, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the days are long. The nights are short. <laughs> I haven't seen a person in person in what seems like forever. I waved at you off my porch not three days ago, Jeffrey. That's true. I did have a, a conversation with an elevated Amelia <laughs> for two minutes. Sick. Yep. Um, I went on a run today, so things are really taking a, a down downhill. Nice. I'm that running. Like an uphill. I'm running it too. It didn't feel that way. It felt bad. <laughs> oh. You just gotta keep doing it, right? Then it gets better. I don't know. I don't know. Um, there... I've gotten to the point where I'm now actively drinking during classes. Um, not <laughs> the ones I teach, but the ones that I'm taking. Yeah. Uh, Thursday during our gothic literature class it was a little rough I did drink an entire bottle of wine over the course of a two-hour period because um our guest lecturer was a bit of a douchebag um and had a real fondness for like trying to refute student points while agreeing with them 
and then stealing ideas from students in the class. So we had a we had a great moment on Mike with him of a lot of us ganging up on him and kind of telling him his ideas were bad. You are um, being a white a cishet white man with too much emotional investment in Jack Torrance as a character in The Shining. So Oh wow. Yeah. That's weird. That's a Am weird I person to be. When you see cishet um written out, I pronounce it in my head sachet. Oh, I, I do that too, yeah. Like, <laughs> or Sichet. Like Sichet. <laughs> well, now I'm gonna. <laughs> Quarantine check-in. Uh, there's this tricky combination of, of factors where I am. Because it's quarantine, so you're not brushing your teeth. But also... <laughs> I think that's wrong. No, everybody's else, else I'm brushing my teeth all the time. <laughs> yeah, I feel brushing, like I'm brushing yeah, extra. I brush my teeth next. <laughs> you guys, you really should have told me about this a couple weeks ago. It's too late to start now. But anyway, you're not brushing your teeth, and you're in New York, where face masks are are the law, almost, are expected. So I don't like where this is going. No, it's just... It's about smelling your own breath. <laughs> yeah, there's this... Line in the bell jar, stooping in your own uh, sour air, which which is kind of romantic when it's like the sour air of your experience, of of your life, of your psyche. But when it's like your literal sour air, then it's kind of nauseating. And that's, I guess, sort of where I am right now. Brush your teeth. Yeah, yeah dude, brush. There's like a pretty simple solution to that. Or choose gum. I feel like it's too late. No, it's really not. It's really not too late. <laughs> so, like, is this gonna, like, if it's too late now, does this mean you're just gonna not brush your teeth post-quarantine, too? Like, is this, like, a no-going-back type of situation? Well, when quarantine's done, the, the dentists will reopen their offices, and they'll be Nick, able to... Nick, those are gonna okay. be so Nick. bloody, Nick. <laughs> Twice a day, Nick goes to the dentist's office and <laughs> 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 and I hope you got dental. <laughs> we have dental, don't we? No. No. no come on. <laughs> Esther has dental. And vision. vision. And vision. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they also pay for your uh your gym membership, Esther? Is it like that kind of corporate? They contribute a hundred percent up to a hundred dollars a month. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I'm joining the fancy gym that has, like, tinted windows around the corner from my office because God knows I couldn't afford that, and I probably still can't. But if they're paying for it, yeah, no, it's a San Francisco-based company, so, like, they really give a shit about work-life balance, which is really funny because when you're a creative, if you aren't, like, drinking by 3 p.m., you're not doing your job well. Like, Do they also, like, support, like, microdosing? Um... <laughs> I don't know, but our CEO probably does. He, like, tuned into yeah. our meeting and he, like, our virtual town hall or whatever with the whole company, and he, like, had a pool in the background and he was, like, wearing a t-shirt, and I was like, sir, you get paid $5 million a year. Like, put a shirt on. <laughs> Button up, baby. CEO vibes. <laughs> Love that for him. Which house shall I pass this quarantine? <laughs> okay, uh, who are we talking about today? We are going to talk about Lacan, and we're going to talk about Zizek. Sick, sick, sick. 
Big Aries energy. Big Aries energy. So, uh, what type of insurance do you guys think Lacan would have? <laughs> or Lacan have? Transition. Wow. Um, transition. Yeah, I don't know. This is kind of a good... I feel like, is this the first podcast where we're talking about people that we actually sort of, or at least some of us actually like, care about, or use in our work, other than just like, kind of, sort of like? I mean, I use Jack Halberstam and some oh, yeah, of the Jack stuff Halberstam. I do, but... Okay, yeah, actually, that makes more sense. Not explicitly what we were talking about the day we did Jack Halberstam. Right, I guess that's yeah, why I didn't think about Halberstam it. Yeah, Jack over here. Not huge. <laughs> You know, when you do monster stuff. <laughs> That's true. That stuff was cool. I cite Deleuze in my thesis. I don't really like Deleuze, oh. but I do. I cite him, like, very briefly. He made, like, one good point one time, and I was like... <laughs> I used Pretty a bunch good. of Deleuze in my thesis, but it was like... I, like, summarized it, and then I was like, this is the dumbest shit ever said. <laughs> can't believe this was published. Hegel. And then just jumped in. <laughs> Has, you, have you, has Deleuze even read Kafka? Damn it! Fucking probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think this might be the only one where some of us. I don't know. I think all of us, for the most part, like this stuff. But then I think some of us, a lot of us, use it in our work. Do you not like? Yeah, Lacan Monica. No, I, I just psychoanalysis in general is not my thing. Like, I okay. don't have beef right. with Lacan the same way I have beef with Freud. But right. No, that makes sense. Who doesn't have beef with Freud? Yeah, I think I was brought in as a ringer on this episode just because I am like a live, laugh, Lacan. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, like my, us... my frame of reference with Lacan for the most part was our theory class that we took with Esther. Um, and my Lacan tweet about getting hit by a car because you're too busy listening to Around the World by Daft Punk. Sure. That's the real. That's that the is real. the real. That's the encounter. That's the damn real. So, so, Esther, do you want to give your elevator uh, pitch on Lacan? Yeah. Um, elevator pitch on Lacan. Jacques Lacan, a Frenchman, born in 1901, <laughs> died in 1981, was literate probably 1905 till the end of his life. Um, he's a psychoanalytic thinker. And his primary work was on the symbolic order, which is like, you know, how we perceive the world around us and how the world around us perceives us. Um, the big other, which are the extenuating forces that force us to do things that we don't want to do. Um, and also the uh, lapse, or the lack, um, which is like the, in the inevitability and the um, inability to be fulfilled as a human being because our tool for fulfillment language has an inherent lack in the signifier which is the word we use and the signified which is what it's describing and that within the space between the word and the object that's called the object ah, and that um, lack lives inside of us every day because nothing we say will ever be able to express what we mean that's a really good elevator pitch. Do you That's think they should instead pitch. say "live lack Lacan," or is that too you much? You what? You that tattooed on my body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very good. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Just throwing oh, that out there. I'd hang that sign in my kitchen. I think. I, oh, I definitely would. I'm 
going to get like a tattoo where like it's like the live laugh love but it's gonna but it the only thing that's different is the words <laughs> that checks I out. like that there has to be an Etsy store that sells something like that <clears throat> If not, you could easily make one. You could easily make one. I saw on Etsy, so Isabella and I were trying to figure out, we want to get some sort of like hilarious bust to put somewhere. And we were like, all right, what's out there? And we found a Slavoj Zizek bust. Um, But it was only like, but it was only like six inches tall or something and like 50 bucks. So anyways. You should get one of Hegel and one of Zizek and, like, turn them towards each other so it looks like they're almost kissing all the time. Well, we were thinking about getting the Zizek one and then putting, like, a can of Spam at the same in the display. Your altar up to Zizek. Yeah. I like that. You have to feed him Spam every night, like, watering a plant, like, as an offering. It's a chia pet, like, the hair goes (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what do we have to do to get a Slavoj Zizek chia pet? (laughs) That'd be great. That'd be great. So I guess... Start drafting that email. Yeah. So, okay, we've already kind of talked about what we like about a Lacan, but maybe we should, like, be explicitly... Esther gave us a really good, like, elevator pitch about, like, some of his key theoretical ideas. So, But, like, maybe why do we like Lacan? Like, what do you guys... What draws you to him? And maybe some of you who work with Lacan more explicitly should start with that. Amelia, do you want to start? Oh, I knew. That was directed <laughs> to me. Um, <laughs> you, Nick, and Edward. <laughs> I feel like it's... So, uh, this is like I'm running up against this thing where it's um, it's way easier to talk about people that you don't care about. Um, yeah. And like that you feel like... Like Camus, I was like, this fucking guy... Um, and like with Lacan, I'm so attached to him and his ideas. Like they just like really resonate. And I've been thinking about lack a lot in quarantine. Um, I feel like it's a uh, it's forcing me to live with my lack in a way that I was not before. Um, but like I feel like ever since I like took my first theory class. Um, well, obviously I was 18, so first I read Derrida, and I was like, this is fucking sick. Um, and then I had to, like, wild. Yeah. <laughs> back a little bit. Did, is that not normal? No, I was no. like, this is hard, I don't like this. When I was 18, I read Derrida, and I was so fucking pissed off, like... like yeah, I read Derrida for theory class in my sophomore year of college, and, like, didn't understand Derrida until it was, like, 2.30 in the morning, and I was having a breakdown over my midterm that was on Derrida, so... And I couldn't even tell you what revelation I had at this point. (laughs) I was just like, difference, difference. Like, I get it. They're different. Um, (laughs) I was the opposite. I never got, like, the constitutive, like, structuralist understanding of anything because I accidentally ended up in an intermediate theory class first semester of my first year. I did, yeah. And um, it, like, theory was introduced to me through a Lacanian lens, because it was Hillary. So uh, literally everything that I've ever understood about theory has come through this lens of, like, this is an idea, but it's never actually, like, the complete idea. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, yeah, so I, Derrida resonated with me, because I was little, um, and I was like, I know stuff about words, um, and I know that they're not always quite right. Then I read Lacan, and I was like, this is it. This is it for me. Um, and like, what? Seven years later? Is that right? Yeah. 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 Oof. 
that's why getting old yeah. <laughs> i'm still feeling it yeah desire drive i like yeah. all of it for me at least and i can talk about what i used i don't i guess i didn't use too much lacan but um as directly but like because, well i i really didn't like psychoanalysis that much until i came to uvm and then i started to like it more there but um which makes sense but <laughs> yeah exactly but i knew i was gonna I, I came to uvm knowing that i wanted to read a bunch of hegel so that sort of works out like that that you would end up liking lacan probably mm-hmm. but i remember like over the summer i was supposed to be reading lacan and i read the psychosis whichever seminar that is and i was like for, at the when i started it i was like very into it because i was like it was warm and i was reading it outside and i was drinking a lot of espresso and I was like, this is a French writer, so I felt very European. And then I got like 150 pages in, and I was like, I've only understood like a cumulative three paragraphs of this. I'm so fucking annoyed right now. Um, well, that's French theory, I think. Yeah, I guess, but like, I don't know. It just like- it bothered me, but oh, yeah. coming through it, after reading like Zizek, and then understanding how a bunch of the Lacanian terms make sense in a Hegelian frame, like then that made sense to me. So then in my thesis, I used a bunch of like big up, like talked a bunch about the big other. I like the idea that there, right. Lacan says there's no big other. And that basically just means what Hegel said, which is substance is subject. So it's like that just translating, translating it all made sense to me. I don't know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What about Eunuch? Ah, Eunuch. Nice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 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 it's really fitting because we're talking about Lacan and uh, castration and all that good stuff. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, my investment in Lacan is, especially because of his idea of drive, the the breakdown of the internal motivation to do things and feel things and say things that each of us has because his writing is the first time I ever heard it articulated in a more complex way than just just do it just do the things that are hard because they're worth it because his whole thing is that it's not that simple on one hand it's something that you can break down into force and object and aim and source it's not just about the thing you're going after it's about your belief that the thing will fill you up inside and it's about the way that you get to the thing through sublimation through going around what the thing actually is and it's about i guess he always makes it sexual so it's about source it's about where in your body the thing is where it's going to fulfill you but but i guess the cool part for me was always that satisfaction is not in any way simple it's not just a spectrum it's this weird insane continuum with a bunch of different factors and even when you break all those factors down it's still nothing meaningful because it's this circuit that's what drive is that's what gets you out of bed in the morning it's pursuing a specific thing that's gonna eventually end in failure and disappointment but the links you to another thing that you pursue and then another and then another and another and i love that because it's 
it's nihilistic. It's grounded in the ultimate failure of the thing you're pursuing. It all, it's also like that's what gets us out of bed in the morning. That's what we get satisfaction from this this drive toward a thing that's ultimately going to fail, that can't do anything but fail because obviously we can't fill all of the hole inside us because then we just then we'd just be done. Then we'd just lie down on a bed and go to sleep forever. And I don't know. Do you think it is necessarily, like, nihilistic, though? Like, I, I guess nihilistic isn't the word that comes up for me with that. Like, I think it's, there's, you it's don't think, too generative to be nihilistic. You don't think that it's, like, a little bit of maybe what Zizek uses when he says, like, hopelessness, though, in some ways? Like... Because isn't that what, not to jump into Zizek too quickly, but, like, isn't that kind of what he means sometimes when he says, like, we have to realize that the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming at us, like, and that we should be hopeless, and that is generated, like, that generates something, and to me, I've always understood that as, like, what Nick was just saying, that, like, it is almost nihilistic, but, like, not nihilistic in despair, but nihilistic in, in, like, holy shit, like, something has to be done. I guess I associate yeah. nihilism with, like, all of the other members of my freshman year intermediate theory class uh, <laughs> who were, like, boys in black turtlenecks uh, talking shit. Um, so it's, like, hard for me to, like, separate that from that um, and to then attach it to this thing that I love. Uh, that that right. makes sense. That makes sense. I feel that. Yeah. Nihilism maybe isn't the right word because it's not just nothing truly matters it's it's nothing truly matters so what are we going to do about it which i guess is nihilism nihilism plus plus. yeah yeah Yeah, i like nihilism plus for that (laughs) i like that too yeah i like that because that's like i don't know i think that's like the objective of the objective of nihilism isn't like pointing to the fact that nothing matters because like that's boring it's like pointing to the fact that nothing like has like maybe like intrinsically matters and then being kind of like okay but then like like you guys just said like you we have to go beyond that because we're here and we're alive so we have to do something yeah kind of the douglas adams form of nihilism what's the like i haven't read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy i mean it's kind of like nothing like you are small and you are insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe, but like you're still here, so you can still you fall can in do, love. Yeah, you can still do laugh. stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that there's like one very important aspect of this whole lack that Nick was kind of dancing around but not quite touching, which is that it's like through Lacan, the failure is the fulfillment. And so yeah. I think that it like not even that it's too generative, it's too fulfilling to truly be a nihilistic view because, like, it's structured so that even when you fail, like, the failure is that which you crave, and so you're still being fulfilled to a certain degree. Yeah. Right, it's not nothing matters, it's, like, failure matters. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's that's Lacan at his most, like, Hegelian, too, I think, where he's just, like, you just keep finding problems like and that's the that's what's fulfilling not just like overcoming them and and like resolving them but actually the fact that you can maintain this constant sort of problem finding in some ways is like 
what is actually meaningful, which I, I, I really like that. I think that for me, the Lacan thing that speaks to me the most, like the language approach, because I grew up like bilingual, which meant that I have like, it kind of felt like I had twice as many words to say nothing. Um, and also that, like, I like the idea of, like, this constitutive lack, um, because, like, I don't know, when I discovered Lacan, I was also 18, and I had just come, like, fresh out of a year where I was, like, in therapy for anxiety and depression. I was, like, so angsty and, like, sad girl, and, like, yeah, I, I do think that there, there is, like, an explanation for this feeling that we all have of like incompleteness and I think that it's kind of a uh, like a romantic way of embracing your incompletion um, and like using it as that generative force to like continue yeah I yeah, totally I agree oh Jeffrey go no, ahead you're good I cut you off what, just, what were you gonna say oh I was gonna say that just on that I, I agree on that exact level that like it's it's refreshing to be told that that you're not going to be fulfilled or whole in some ways, because I feel like every other like philosophical doctrine or even religious doctrine or ideological is like claims that there's like this end point, end point of wholeness. And so you're always just wondering like what's wrong in in a, some, in some sense. And like the idea that like you never will necessarily be whole is is more exciting and more sort of, I don't know. And that's, and that's, it's also comforting to think about like going back to the big other, like to know that like nobody else, like there is nobody else that is also, that is whole in some way. And that like everybody's just fucking up constantly. <laughs> and that to me is so comforting and explains so much, you know what I mean? Like, and it gets, that's, it dispels so many concerns. Like, you know, today we see so many people so paranoid about like surveillance or something. And then as soon as you realize that the people who are surveying you are just as stupid as you are and that they're <laughs> fucking up the entire time as well, you know, through this Microsoft Teams chat that we're doing, you can kind of be like, okay, well, wait a second. I can like maybe use that to my advantage. And there's something to learn from that instead of just being scared all the time. Yeah. So then Jeffrey. I guess what becomes alarming is, is those people who, like, aren't uh, willing to acknowledge the, like, impossibility of fulfillment, right? It's, like, yeah. that then well, what's scary what, what is what like, Todd, fill up this hole. Yeah. <laughs> I think Todd would describe people who uh, disavow their lack as fascist, honestly. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it is mm. just so dangerous to be like so sure of yourself <laughs> yeah well in todd's yeah. book that amelia and i are reading right now basically fascism is described by like as like a, a doctrine that you think that you can fulfill your lack by ridding yourself of another community which is created that you believe is creating your lack right like like you see this like other as being opposed to your to yourself and so you can like unite yourself by ridding that other group right and then you will be whole like once the other is totally then dissolved or whatever right, right. So. yeah yeah it's like denying yourself as a as a ruptured subject yeah um, and what do you guys 
Sorry, but, I cut you off. No, I cut you off. Familiar. No, and just saying, like, I, I can be whole. Look at me whole. Yeah. What do you guys think the quintessential, like, example, like, contemporary example of someone who disavows their lack? Jeff Bezos. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, like, Fitzbo uh, Instagram accounts. What? Say like, more. People, those people think that they could be fulfilled. Is yeah. the thing. Like, they think that if they, like, I don't know, drink enough protein shakes and, Not like, well, get isn't, enough gains. Well, isn't I want to just... change my answer. I want to change yeah. my answer to those people in Michigan that were rallying outside the state house in um, opposition to social distancing. Oh, um, I saw that. It's fucking wild. The one with the sign that says social distancing equals communism is this yeah, the one? That specific oh, person is a fascist. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they all had like AR 15s and shit, and they were just like, right? Yeah, I think that they were just getting a lot of their like um, causes confused. I think that there's just a lot of um, sensory overload for those people right now. <laughs> just yeah. guys being dudes. Well, Jeffrey, <laughs> another example isn't. Isn't just doesn't capitalism function on the idea that you'll be fulfilled in the future very soon? Like yeah. if you just purchase enough things and make enough money, and like the entrepreneur mindset is like is like financial security, hot wife, uh, and like a Lamborghini, and then <laughs> like, the black is rendered no. Also, like the I would say quintessentially people who disavow like. People who have, like, Instagram accounts and, like, dudes who study finance. Like, yeah. I think that the guys that study study Steinance. Um, <laughs> 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 I'm just studying some Steinance. Yes, I think our, I think our Steinance students are, um, <laughs> like, actually not uh, disavowing the ruptured subjectivity because they are, um, like, seeking that. They are chasing it. But, like, they are still motivated by the fact that they don't have it. Right, but don't they think that they will have it? You know yeah, what I mean? Like, like they know that they don't have it now, but they believe in a future, at, at some point in the future, they will, and they, they can achieve absolute wholeness. Like, it, they can overcome yeah. and resolve their lack. Like, that's the whole point. Right, whereas, yeah, that, like, Lacan and, like, even Hegel is, like, you can never feel complete. You're always going to be divided in some way. Well, what would you say about, like, a venture capitalist, then, that would jump from project to project because they're, like, bored of that project or that project, quote, isn't doing it for them or something like that? Well, then that person might might be more Lacanian. But I think the, the sort of more general, like, mindset of, like, entrepreneurship, like, something that I see even on, like, my Instagram explore page because I'm an entrepreneur myself by the way, as I'm saying this. Uh, <laughs> Hegel is a Virgo right. in business now. We're making a lot of money, guys. Um, we're so fucking rich. Okay, shut up about it, because we're not paying Esther. Yeah. By the way, sponsored po No. Um, like, that general mindset runs on the idea. Oh, wait, but actually, even the venture capitalist could still be saying, like, like, the next project will fulfill me or something like that. Or, I don't know. Yeah, because I think one of the things is, is like, they're they, like they are wrong. It's just like that in their head they think that they're right. So it's not like that they're like their actions are proving that this theory is right because the theory is right. But like the fact that they think it isn't, they think that they think that like, oh yeah, this next project is going to be the one and I'm going to fulfill it, 
is them disavowing their lack or maybe i don't know no, i think it is and well so and i think they're like they're like elon musk that's right. they, the big other elon musk like he has it, <laughs> right like he he filled it up like he he fills the hole he fills it yeah. up baby. he did it um and like yes. i think that's part of it too right like you have to have this conception of an other that like has has it is right. grimes the object of them Yes. Obviously. Grimes is now the mother of capitalism. Yeah. yeah. That sucks. I love Grimes. But, <laughs> I'm so pumped out. I love her early music. But I also think, though, that, like, you can't, like, it's very easy to be, like, to, to, to be, like, capitalism or, like, other, you know, like, a fascist project disavows lack. But I also think that, like, most, like, Maoism definitely disavowed, you know what I mean? It was, like... Yeah. It was like, or and Stalinism too. That like, and Marx, even just Marx, like that you can like overcome this divide that you see um, through revolution, and then you will attain some sort of like whole unified state. I don't know. Like I'm breaking it down to the most like rudimentary level, but I still think that that's there, and in, in like those leftist projects too. So right. Um, so not, again, not to get into Zizek too early, but like for Zizek ideology is like what allows, like what offers us justification for our lack and fantasy is the supplement that is like, but maybe not. Um, so like capitalism is like, you, you yes, like there, capitalism affirms your lack and it says like, you don't have enough stuff and that's why you feel hollow. Um. And then fantasy swoops in and it's like, but one day we could have enough stuff. Um, so I think like that's an important distinction that Zizek adds to the conversation yeah. um, that helps you like think through both sides of that project, you know? Yeah. Have y'all found yourselves like shopping more during the quarantine? I desperately tried to stop myself from doing that. But I know a lot of people who are doing more online shopping since being in quarantine actually like so i one of my quarantine things recently is i've been listening to a lot of sawbones um which is the, another podcast um about like medical history stuff just because i've been doing a lot of quarantine and coronavirus episodes recently mm-hmm. um but one of their ad breaks was for an online like coupon finder um extension for your web browser and they commented on the fact that you like us are probably doing a lot of shopping during quarantine like a lot of more online shopping than you're used to yeah i've found myself like it's it's funny like being in my house all the time i think that i i've never had uh like measuring spoons or measuring cups and i've never needed them when i'm like coming in and out of my house but for some reason now that i'm in my house all the time i'm like well to like have a home and to have a house means also to have measuring cups and spoons and now I must buy them like things that I never felt compelled to do so I've been doing that sort of shopping which I'm not sure what that means yeah I bought a hat I bought a hat I bought a suit I'll show it to you after the Syracuse hat I bought a Syracuse hat yeah it's cool I can't wait to get a Syracuse Mets hat oh hell yeah that's gonna be cool Esther have you been shopping not shopping as much, but also, weirdly, 
obsessing over the tracking of packages. Oh, yeah. So, like, even if something is being sent to me from a friend, like, I did a puzzle swap with a couple of friends, and, like, um, my work sent me a couple of things when I got hired, like, and they would send me tracking numbers, and I find myself obsessing over where they are. Like, I don't know what that is. Like, it's not even the, I, I don't think it's the acquisition of more stuff. I think it's just that I know it's coming and it's not here yet. Like, it's also kind of exciting to think about things out in the world. I'm like, imagine yeah. traveling. Yeah, that <laughs> How makes about sense. that? Wow, my backpack is on a plane, but I can't buy a backpack. I bought a backpack. No, my company sent me a Patagonia backpack when I got hired. Before quarantine, I was, like, obsessive over checking for packages and stuff, but I think just because, like, I want to have something to look forward to and to be surprised over, I've stopped checking, tracking stuff, just because, A, I'm, like, it'll come to me when it comes to me. I don't anticipate, like... I'll be here. Yeah, I'll be here. I'm not fucking going anywhere, Um, but also, I, who knows what the postal service, like between all the stuff going on with USPS right now and, like, people trying to defund USPS and I don't trust tracking times nowadays. Uh, it's just better to be surprised, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Sorry, there's... to derail the conversation, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about the acquisition of stuff mm. and, like, the promise of more stuff. And I was yeah. like, hmm, what would Lacan say about tracking packages? <laughs> well, so I think um, in Todd's... Todd's book on atemporal cinema there's this like section in the beginning about like moving to like moving towards the subject of drive versus the subject of uh, desire um and in it he talks about like how like digital digital capitalism <laughs> basically has allowed us this instant gratification quality so that like you're like your your unconscious is like constantly being asked to like send up like new objects or like the symbolic is constantly being asked to like constitute new objects of fantasy and of desire um like more so than it once was because you're like if you want to watch a movie like you're not like oh like after work I will drive to Blockbuster and I will rent said movie um and when it's my turn on the TV I'll get to watch it um, you're just like, hey, which movie and make computer right now? Um, and it's interesting that coronavirus kind of interrupts that instant gratification on some level. Yeah. Um, not not with streaming services, but um, with ordering packages. I like that. I like yeah. that take, Amelia. Do you Thank think? You know, just bringing it back, circling back to desire and drive, baby. Circle it back. It's all about it's all about the circle. All about the circle. But the circle is broken. The circle is broken. Do you think, like, people are, like, in quarantine sort of forced to reconcile more with their lack? Or if they're just, like, shopping seems to be, like, a very good way to avoid reconciling yourself to that sort of problem or to to the, the divide or whatever. I don't know. How do you, I guess... I'm just asking for more quarantine talk here. No, uh, but that makes, I mean, I think it makes sense to situate this in, like, the real world, the new real world. 
Right. Uh, do you guys have a this is a genuine question. Do you have a Lacanian take on me uh, re-downloading and actively using dating apps while <laughs> in quarantine? Is there a... Like, yeah. that is something to do with desire. Like, that oh is... Oh, like, Yes, Jeffrey. Are you kidding? Like, that is the absolute Lacanian, like, endeavor because it is something that you know you could have, but you'll never get it because you can't leave your house. Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty easy that's one, perfect. I think. And right. as Nick would say, also sex. Like, also right. sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that is what Nick yeah. says. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know Japan would say, um, <laughs> sex only happens when something doesn't work. Um, there, there is no sexual relation, which is quite literally true, as yeah. I swipe on Tinder while <laughs> fucking isolated in my apartment. Um, <laughs> you isolated. change your Tinder bio to say under quarantine. There is no sexual relation. <laughs> that was a great joke, and it went so unloved. You said, well, I'm fucking isolated. And I said, who's isolated? Oh, I didn't hear you guys, but that is a good joke. Okay, so we just had two good jokes, though. That was good. <laughs> All right, I think... Look, everyone's got their fair share of good fucking jokes, Esther. Relax. All right. Wait, maybe to speak generally, I feel like quarantine makes it almost impossible to come to terms with lack because we all have an idea in our mind of when this will end, when we'll get to go to a restaurant, when we'll get to go on a date, when we'll get to go to a store and not have to wait for our packages. This idea that will be fulfilled that things will be back to normal and that normal will mean something right well this goes back this goes back to a little bit what we talked about on our last podcast uh esther wasn't here but um when we were talking about how like everybody's right about now and already and soon definitely people well we just talked about the protests that people are like we just can't wait for things to go back to normal and I think the greatest thing to be saying right now is, and this is like a Lacanian point probably, is that they're like, there is no back to normal. Or the, or at the very least, there shouldn't be a back to normal because normal is why we're in the position that we are in right now. And so, yeah, I mean, I think you're right, Nick, that like, that is a way that we can avoid lack by saying like, well, soon, you know, hopefully like by the end of May, everything will be back to normal and... We will never have to confront our lack ever again, um, other than just buying something new. Um, and the uh, like, the idea of saying like, no, there can't be a normal, which I have heard surprisingly from people who I wouldn't expect. That is like, that's more of a Lacanian take. That like, poli- like a politically Lacanian take, maybe like a Zizekian take. That like things won't go back to normal. You're going to have to like confront this in some different way. I don't know. I think that's true. She's just already written a book about this. Right. We, yeah. Pandemic exclamation mark. She's about everything, Jeffrey. <laughs> it's literally like, like 75 books, right? Yeah. 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 Over 70. She literally a month ago wrote a book about the coronavirus. Like it's literally, it's still happening now. <laughs> no stone unturned. Well, it's probably like, <laughs> it's, you know, you know, as they say, uh, Slavoj Žižek, the J.K. Rowling of theory, um, <laughs> he's probably got, like, a contract where it's just like, okay, Verso, or whoever, I'm going to write a yeah. book about the coronavirus, just, like, throw it up on Amazon, and then, like, you know, it'll be out when I'm done with it or whatever, right? right. 
Yeah. Although, actually, I saw something that was like, even Verso wouldn't take this new book on the fucking pandemic. <laughs> which makes sense. Uh, which is, yeah, distracting well, some integrity. It also makes sense that, like, Zizek is publishing articles in, like, the Philosophical Salon, which is, like, a magazine, basically, like, every month. And it's, like, just maybe, like, relax and, like, concentrate on, like, writing something really good for a bit. And then, I don't know. But... I think you might be asking a little bit too much there, Edward. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> this man cannot and will not be stopped. That's true. I hope he's safe. Yeah. I do too, yeah. I um, watched... No, he's so high risk, and also he never washes his hands. And like, never stops touching his face. He, like, he just sits there like this. Like It's okay, I wash my hands before and after this, so... Um, <laughs> Wait, you washed it before and after this? Oh, yeah. I passed him and washed my hands in the future. Esther is an oh, atemporal <laughs> being subject. I watched the video of Zizek, like, video conferencing into an interview. And, like, the whole thing, like, the camera was just shaking, like, the entire time. Like, he was, like, <laughs> holding the laptop, but, like, sitting and just being, like, so, you see, like, and just, like, freaking out. You know what I mean? It was, it was pretty great. It was a good interview. <laughs> I'm um, always read this pandemic book because I'm actually curious. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, I'll read the introduction to his pandemic book. I guess is what I'm saying. Right. I think it's only like a hundred pages. That is one of the things I like about Zizek is he'll just like real quick, like like the book I just I just reread his Welcome to the Desert of the Real. It's like 150 pages. Like, I mean, like his longer stuff, like Parallax View and like Less Than Nothing, are like behemoths. But like he also just whips out like the occasional hundred, two hundred page book. That's like fine. Yeah. I like that. I like short books. Is good. Yeah, should we I just jump into Zizek yeah, at this point? Should, I, I think at this point, transition over yeah. to Zizek. Quick note Fiona Apple and her new fantastic album, sponsored post right here, um, <laughs> says the phrase Parallax View. So, really? There we go. Wow. Does she have a song named Parallax View? No, or? I wish. That'd be great. But no. That'd be cool. Okay. Fiona Apple is a Virgo as well as Hegel. Wow. Just so everyone knows. Excellent. We could change the podcast name. Fiona Apple. Fiona Apple is a Virgo. <laughs> um, before we switch over fully to Zizek, we want to talk about why Lacan is a good Aries. He's got a lot to say, and he's a big old baby. <laughs> so I feel like that's, those are the big two things, you know? Have you guys uh, seen that video of, like, uh, Lacan just yelling at this one student? Like, it's like this guy stands up at this lecture and starts fighting at him, and Lacan just, like, verbally berates him. Okay, well, that's very airy. Checks like out. That. Dude, reading... Yeah, he's, he's a big baby, maybe, like that. Lacan is the most arrogant theorist, maybe? Is that, like, an... Is that, like, a thing of his? I don't know. Reading... Or the Derrida? Reading the, like... Oh, maybe not Derrida, but, like, reading the seminar that I read, I was just, like, the whole time I was like, you are such a douchebag. I love it, but you're a douchebag. All right, is it because he's an Aries or because he's French, though? Mm, That's a good point, Monica. (laughs) Is that a recorder? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I, um, I just... Play play, uh, Hot Cross Buns for the podcast. Do it, you can't. (laughs) Do it, you won't.
It's lit. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I just, I rolled over it with my chair. I don't know how it ended up in my room, on my floor, under my chair. Don't know. Oh, what's this? Living in your childhood <laughs> bedroom. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. Holy shit. Okay. Uh. All right. Uh, our boy, Slavoy. Our boy Slavoy. Oh, I'm going to get Slavoy that. Slavoy vibe check. All right. Uh, uh, so Slavoj Žižek was born March 21st, 1949. Uh, he's a Slovenian philosopher, currently a researcher at the Department of Philosophy. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this because uh, I know I'll not do it correctly. Um, but he also is the international director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities of the University of London. He works in subjects including um, continental philosophy, political theory, cultural studies, psychoanalysis, film criticism, Marxism, Hegelianism, and theology. He's up to shit. He is up to shit. Yeah, like we've already mentioned, he's incredibly prolific. He's written about 75 books. Most of them in English, which is not his first language. No. So that's incredibly impressive. Uh, all around smart guy. Yeah. 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 That's I, it. I, smart. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He's very, um, a very stream of consciousness writer and thinker, mm-hmm. um, which I think makes him, for some people, more accessible and for others less accessible. Right. Um, in terms of structure and, like, reading it, I frankly will struggle with him and on any given day just because it's like so all over the place um and i find if i'm drunk it's helpful um, <laughs> yeah i from the very limited amount of zizek i've read um which is truly a limited amount i find there are certain concepts of his that are a little easier to follow but i do tend to get pretty bogged down in his stream of consciousness also just from the fact that he does not edit his stuff before he publishes it (laughs) um that also trips me up a little bit but that's my own like having done work as an editor before like it's my own problem so i think that that has like like his style has like helped his popularity so much and also hurt it like because like the fact that he talks about just like whatever pop culture like the fact that he talks about kim kardashian in the courage of hopelessness or like you know i love that section right just like or just all these random pop culture references and movies and stuff has made him really accessible and interesting to people but then at the same time it's like where's the point here because you've just talked about like seven movies and kim kardashian and lacan at the same time and i'm just like where is this going you know what i mean yeah his uh the book i just uh reread by him the one i like welcome to the desert the real he talks about the land before time and uh (laughs) shrek in like the same book and like with actually i think in the same chapter and it's i mean i see i find that stuff really helpful but personally like i think it is something that confuses a lot of people but i have a tough time particularly with like continental philosophy like kind of following or like understanding a key theoretical concept unless i see it played out in like a filmic example or like a political example yeah well comparing i oh sorry no go ahead go ahead that's one of the reasons I like him. I also think he's funny. 
again, yeah. um, in the a lot of what it does with the real is uh, in response to Giorgio Agamben's Homo Soccer. Um, and he has a chapter called uh, Homo Soccer. Like, nice. And it's like, I don't, like, it's just like this weird, like, I don't know. He's just like kind of like a goofy thinker, which I think some people, I don't know. Like, and his thing's like a whole critique of Agamben. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like we have to talk about um, the Jordan Peterson debate because I yeah. feel like that like really brought Shinshek to the people. Yeah. Um, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Oh. I was I was I was literally thinking about this today. Like, if we find out Jordan when we find out Jordan Peterson signed, like, what's the decision? Like, could we make a podcast just making fun of him? And then I was kind of like, we probably shouldn't, but. I was thinking about that a bunch today. He is Gemini. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, so in two episodes, we could hypothetically spend an entire episode making fun of Jordan Peterson. That is appealing to me. All right, Um, we can do it. Also, the second suggestion is, like, because you Googled Jordan Peterson, do you also want to look at Noam Chomsky's Wikipedia page? (laughs) Seems. That's weird. And then the next one is Ben Shapiro. Uh, ben Shapiro was the second. <laughs> that sucks. I feel bad for Gnome. Yeah, me too. The Jordan Peterson debate actually is, you're right, Amelia, that, like, it does bring Zizek to the people because I think he, like, so succinctly, like, demonstrates some of his points because they're so in contrast to Jordan Peterson, particularly on, like, you know, like, Jordan Peterson's whole deal is, like, set your, like, clean your fucking room, make your bed, set your house in order, and then you're, like, making the world better. And Zizek is the absolute opposite. And he was, like, one of the greatest points in that debate was, like, where he was, like, okay, sure. Like, obviously, clean your fucking house. Like, I'm not disagreeing with you. But, like, what if you live in a place like North Korea where you literally can clean your house, but you may not even necessarily have a house to clean? Or you don't have, like, the conditions set for you to even be able to do the, the act that you're asking us or asking us to do? Like... Like, there are other things at play that prevent people from, like, making the choices that you're advocating here. And ultimately, those choices are either impossible for people or, when they are possible, are irrelevant to, like, the larger body. You know what I mean? And I I think that's a good, like, sort of example of, like, Zizek's maybe political project, like, very basically. Well, and to go back to, like, your point about, like getting back to normal I feel like part of what he's saying there is like is like no like setting things in order is not like politically productive in any way like just yeah it's kind of like bold of you to operate under the assumption that normal is anything we're getting back to right yeah if I'm saying like I actually I was actually talking about this with one of my other friends from undergrad and she was, we were talking about how, like, this particular moment, not to, like, bring it back to the quarantine, but it's actually impossible not to, because we're all existing, like, together, but, you know, separate, like, is this, this could be, this has the potential to be, like, a a globally traumatic situation that can push things forward, right, and the idea that people want to return to normal is dangerous to progress and i think zizek would say that it's like 
you know, counterintuitive to want to go back instead of uh, making something new. Doc's also like kind of a rentian, so maybe I get them confused sometimes. <laughs> no, I think I think that's totally like a Zizekian point. Um, yeah, because he's always like concerned about. Um, I don't know, like the insidious, like underside of things. Like he's always like, I'd rather it be kind of just like there, right? Like that. It's not like, like I don't know how to say it. <laughs> like, like it's like in your face. Like that's one of the reasons why he came out when it was between Hillary and Trump in the 2016 presidential election. He was like, Yeah, yeah, I would vote for Trump if I was a U.S. citizen because Trump's at least like evil and tells you that he's evil. Like, and I think this is like one of the things that like the coronavirus has done. It's like shown to a lot of people who maybe didn't initially realize it, how, like, fundamentally dysfunctional our society is. Like, so I think that's the Zizekian Yeah, I'll say, like, to me that feels so optimistic, but I have heard people that, like, people I know who, like, definitely I wouldn't have expected be like, yeah, this is awful and we need to figure something out and we need to like change our entire political system who like never would have been like a Bernie supporter or something before. Right. You know what I mean? And so like part of me is just like whenever I hear people being like this coronavirus like has proved that like Trump fucking sucks. I'm like, yeah, obviously. Yeah. But like um, I'm, I think that that's optimistic but then there is a part of me where i'm like even seeing it among people who like didn't hate him you know what i mean right yeah yeah Yeah, well i feel like gj's whole thing is is and this is like him you know like coming from a hegelian angle is just like confronting negativity you know constantly right like he he has a book called tearing with the negative which comes from hegel and it's all about the fact that like we're so quick to uh, blind ourselves to like the negativity of our situation. And rather instead we should just be like confronting that just like in a Lacanian sense, right? Obviously Zizek's Lacanian. So that you need to be confronting lack and division and, and problems and negativity rather than sort of like believing in this overcoming or synthesizing or resolving of that negativity. No, I think that's all. I think that is that's the most salient thing, like the thing that connects through all of his work, um, and also ties him to Lacan, mm-hmm. um, is this like insistence on the recognition of and like living with the negative. And you know that's why Deleuze is like a real sucker. Um, yeah, he's, he's the so unwilling to do that. Dude, and I mean Jordan Peterson too. Yeah, exactly, Jordan Peterson. I mean Deleuze's whole thing like in that in his book on kafka with guattari is literally like yeah it seems like everything that kafka wrote about is really sad but actually it can just be happy if you think about it as like it's happy or something (laughs) and it's you know what i mean and and zizek you know like zizek has in sublime object he talks a bunch about the trial by kafka and like it's really great and makes way more sense yeah yeah, how the hell would you even like? How is the metamorphosis happy, dude? It's literally, it's literally maybe one of the worst like theoretical books I've. It's probably the worst theoretical yeah. book I've ever read. Like, it makes no fucking sense, and it's That's so insane. terrible. So for Deleuze, right? Like, and he's he's not a he's not an Aries, so we shouldn't really talk about him. But um, 
like all of the bad is external, right? Like the negative is externalized. Um, and if we're like looking at this rupture book that Todd wrote, like that's fascism, right? If you're if you're taking <laughs> the negative yeah. and you're fascism <laughs> and you're separating it from from the subject and you're saying, um, it, like we can, I guess Deleuze doesn't go so far as to say we can eradicate the negative, but just says that he does. I mean, he almost does. I mean, you think? Okay. Yeah, I mean, he he. It's not even that he thinks that we can eradicate the negative. It's that he doesn't even believe in a negative almost. Like he already has like rendered it null. I mean, even in my, in my thesis, I, I talked about how like he talks about Kafka as being like a representative of like what he calls the machine man or the machine writer. And I was like, this paragraph literally sounds exactly like Marionetti, uh, the futurist, like writing the fascist manifesto with with Mussolini like it's literally the same he's like I can't wait until we become machines or something like that and like that's what he writes about um and futurism is all about positivity going forward everything and and uh Zizek and and Hegelianism and everything is about turning negative you know yeah so Fitzbo's fascist What, Edward, you one time explained to me a really great point about that Zizek made in the sublime object of ideology about Judas, but I forget the point, but I really liked it Uh, when you told me. There's just a footnote in sublime object where he talks about Martin Scorsese's uh, film about Jesus Christ. I don't remember what it's called. But he apparently in, yeah, The Temptation or whatever. Yeah, Temptation of Christ. And apparently, like, that film actually claims that, like, Judas is the hero because Judas understands that he has to um, get Christ killed for everybody to be saved. So that, so Judas, like, sacrifices his whole, whole, you know, he he makes himself, like, the universal villain um, so that he can create the universal hero. Which is like a interesting take. Also, I when I was rereading Gravity's Rainbow, Pynchon says the same thing in it. Really? Yeah. So. Your boy. My boy. Yeah. Your boy. I love that point. Yeah. Because that's totally right. Like there wouldn't be a Christianity if Judas did not do that, didn't betray Christ. Like it literally, there wouldn't be because like Christ had like in the biblical narrative christ had to die for everyone else to be saved well think about this and this is like definitely like a zizekian analysis of like nazism is that like there wouldn't be christianity without jews either like right like as a christian you should love the fact that jews condemned christ like and were like rooting for him to be crucified you know what i mean like that should be you should understand the value in that as, and that should affirm your identity more than a hatred to the Jews. Like it doesn't make any, right. you know what I mean? Like what else is there to say about Zizek? He I, came and spoke on campus and none of us went. <laughs> I went. You went, Esther? Yeah, I went. Did you go I, both times, Esther? No, I went, um, wait, yes, I did go both times. I went to the faded first year talk where he literally, like, got the cane at three hours because he was just, like, going too long. <laughs> um, 
And then it was honestly kind of nice because it bookended. My second semester senior year, he came to do um, Peterson prep uh, on our campus. And um, I actually briefly got to speak with him before he gave his talk. And he called me an academic slave because I was a TA. And I was like, no, they're paying me. And he goes, yeah, but that's still a form of slavery. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I didn't know you got to meet him. And, yeah, it was bizarre, honestly, to, like, see that man in person and, like, be close to him and, like, be able to smell him. Thankfully, I think he showered that day or the day before. I was just going to ask you, did he smell? No, he didn't. Um, he told Todd later. And Todd reported back to me that he had showered not two days before in advance of being on a plane. Because <laughs> um, he's a communist, not an asshole. Like, <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty bizarre. And it was also really funny that, like, the three words that were exchanged between me and this, like, very, like, top of his game philosopher was like, you are enslaved. <laughs> I was like, this is great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's so on brand. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, it was very fulfilling, which I found very unsatisfying. You know, I wanted more. I wanted I wanted to be nagged by Flavoj Zizek. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess we haven't really talked about, I mean, we've talked about his political like projects, but... No one's really talked about, um, I'm not good at this part, so, like, about the whole, um, Hegel, uh, Hegel, Zizek, Marxism link, um, those were things that I know that they are linked, but I was never good at understanding them, but that hasn't been addressed yet. Yeah, isn't it? So, he always says that, like, Marx critiqued Hegel, and it's, time for a hegelian critique of marx Mm -hmm. and i think it kind of goes back to what we were just saying or we were saying earlier with like this first off marx marx like disavows half of the phenomenology he like just totally gets rid of a bunch of the points mostly the religious stuff and then and then he also doesn't see contradiction in the same way that I think Hegel does where he sort of believes in this overcoming almost like you can overcome your lack that like you can break down all of history and all of sort of humanity basically to this fundamental contradiction between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and that this can be overcome through um, revolution. This can be like synthesized so that you can like make one class or something like that. And Hegel sort of, I think it's like kind of clear that like Hegel thinks that like you can't, you can't just like overcome these things, that you can't just like synthesize things into like one unification, but that you can instead sort of like deepen the contradiction. And that doesn't mean like make things worse, but that means like there's always a, a problem to confront. And when you believe that there isn't always going to be a problem to confront, that means you can like rationalize horrific things in the name of like confronting the one problem that you have defined. And so that in many ways explains like Stalinism where it's like, 
you can rationalize the most horrific events of the tw- of our of human history basically um because you're just trying to overcome this one problem and in this in the process you're blinding yourself to like the greater problems that are that are arising through this entire thing which is you know many of those great problems are sending people to fucking camps you know what i mean like murdering people like those like very obvious things get blinded and i think that's partially slavoy's or gets a little bit into slavoy's definition of like ideology right yeah i when you were talking about like defining the one problem um and i like briefly mentioned her name earlier but i was thinking about hannah arendt and um eichmann in jerusalem and uh like eichmann in jerusalem is the account of the uh, trials of Adolf Eichmann, who was the designer of the Final Solution during World, like World War II slash the Holocaust, um, and about how in this trial, I mean, what we talked about in the class is different than like what we're talking about here. But in this trial, basically, what Eichmann says is like, I was just listening to my directive, and my directive was to solve the problem. And so I think that that's really funny because it like ties together this like um, ideological hail, like just following the directive given to you by the big other. And also like this idea that defining something as an antithesis doesn't upend the initial structure that like it comes from. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's perfect. Like, like I think that, that, Zizek and many other people like totally ident like in Todd too like Todd and Paul Eisenstein and Rupture are claiming that like fascism and totalitarian communism communism are forms of of are basically there's a divide we can um, overcome this divide like that's like the whole theoretical basis and and then what ha- what came about in the 21st century is like and this you know, this ties into like Kafka is like a system, like understanding systems of bureaucracy. And so that happens in Eichmann in Jerusalem where he's like, we can make a bureaucracy that is so incredibly efficient that people don't feel as if they're confronting, they can blind themselves to the awful problems that are arising in the name of the greater problem that we've isolated. That's what's happening. But also it's, I guess it's like, it would be good to talk about how Zizek and Hegel believe in like the power of bureaucracy for good too. That there's like, you know, like Zizek almost believes that, and Hegel believe that like the great, the closest that we would ever get to a utopia is like a bureau, a bureaucratic, like a really tightly knit bureaucratic system. And I think Zizek thinks that we can do that by like learning from communism and fascism in some ways, which is like very controversial, you know? Yeah. It's a hot take. That's a hot take. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems so funny to, like, combine those two things, you know, to combine communism and fascism to create something moderate, like... Well, no, I don't don't think that he's saying... I don't think he's saying that. I think he's just saying, like, you can... He's like, look at how efficient these fucking systems were, right? Like, they set up bureaucratic systems, but the bureaucratic... The bureaucratic systems were set up in such a way to accomplish this singular problem that we've, this singular contradiction that we believe we can overcome. What if we could set up a a bureaucracy that is 
that addresses itself or like orients itself towards deepening contradiction or like confronting lack like could you could you set up a bureaucracy that confronts lack did zizek believe in like or does zizek how how would he feel about like plato's idea of like the philosopher king that like uh we should like basically philosophers should be in charge and like of these like intricate like plato did use the word bureaucracy but it was kind of like that so like i I think like i could see that working if like people like zizek were like i i I guess i don't understand like how that could be applied on like a mass level i guess i don't want to i don't want to like bog down the podcast and like hegel talk but um i i think i know they Hegel absolutely disagrees with Plato on that because because Hegel thinks that the if there is like a monarch or like a king that the king should be like a symbol of like absolute stupidity in the oh in the state so that like all excess is like thrown at this like absolute idiot who has no control and actually the bureaucracy runs everything else so the philosopher king wouldn't be smart so it wouldn't be a philosopher Okay, uh, that makes sense. So it'd be like, uh, yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I, just, I didn't know what that would look like, but that, that makes So I guess not the U.S. Not the we, U.S. Because the thing is we like, I don't know, our president is an idiot, but like we glorify him. Like people are very much so convinced that he isn't an idiot. I think, I think the best example is something like Norway. Okay. Where like the king is like so irrelevant. You know, what right. I mean? like they are a monarch, monarchy. No, that makes sense. Um, but they have like absolutely no say in anything. We're all up to weird shit. Towards the end um, of the pod, Nick has just been making like random noises. Like yeah, Nick, I heard that? at least Wait. three things fall over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm Nick was really on the glass. Did you see that? Like. No. I mean, I'm chugging it from the bottle. I'm to be quiet so you can't hear me. Pouring it. Is this not working? Oh, it's working. Oh, are you on a different bottle than you were when we started this podcast? No, I'm not. Not a fucking wild man. I've had one bottle of wine. That's. (laughs) (laughs) Being very conservative right now. It's 5:55. I love that. Uh. I think a cool way to sign, if we're going to sign off, I think a cool way to sign off, because we were kind of talking about earlier in the episode, is, like, early theorist crushes. Like, the people, theorists that we, like, initially read when we were, like, 18, were like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is the shit. Also, real quick, what makes Slavoj Zizek a good Aries or a bad Aries? He's got, he's loud. He's he's prolific. And he's also a big baby. (laughs) Um, I don't usually associate big babiness with Aries just because I, cancer-wise, am always being told that I'm the, like, crybaby mom friend. It's I'm not crybaby, it's like, um, it's like angry baby. Okay. Like, temper tantrum oh. baby. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's like Curtis, boss baby, the, the movie. A, cur- a curlish baby? Oh, what is that word? But it's it's not that. No, Kurdish is like the Kurdish. That's an identity. Um, Kurdish. Yeah, Kurdish. Kurdish. Uh, 
Churlish also, yes. Colicky and churlish are both words that I was looking for. I have as a baby. Um, but as a cancer, I don't get told I'm a baby as much as I get told I'm like just um temperamental or like emotional. Um I don't get I don't get called a crybaby as much as I do just like I don't know, a cancer. <laughs> you got that Scorpio rising, baby. Yeah, that's I my also map. Have a Scorpio but I rising, but I I think the Virgo moon as opposed to an Aquarius moon might also have something to do with that. Um, yeah. Esther, I'm glad you have an Aquarius moon as well. <laughs> it's weird out there. Um, it, makes, it makes sense when you think about it. Like it does. Um, I think it balances out the um, cancer pretty nicely. Yeah, I think it's good. God, I wish that were me. Um, Anyway, I'll try and find Shinshek's full chart and see what else is going on. But for my early theory crush, um, I would say that, like, if you were to have, like, a theory crush, mine would just be, like, Lacan was, like, my high school sweetheart, and we just, like, got married, you know, we followed each other to to college, and we got married, and now we, like, are expecting our first kid in our, like, late 20s, but we haven't really been apart for a while, Um, Mm -hmm. so it's either going to go fine for the rest of our lives, or end in, like, a bitter divorce. Yeah. Gotcha. But he's not a military guy, it's just that we were high school sweethearts, and we enjoyed, like, being high school sweethearts. I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, Derrida would be, like, the guy who, like, lived down the hall for a semester, for a semester of freshman year, and he was a sophomore, and I was a freshman, um, and it was, like, all very exciting, and then I realized he was just close by, you know, um, <laughs> and, and then I found Lacan, and I was like, all right, well, this is, this is it, <laughs> real deal. He's French. France. Yeah. Uh, mine was probably Baudrillard. I think the first, like, theory book I read was uh, Simulacron Simulation. And I was just like, ah, oh, cool, everything's fake. <laughs> and, I was just like, and I was just like, damn, it's all But you had never seen The Matrix? I had never... This is a, f- a funny fact about me. I didn't see The Matrix until earlier this year, so I read a bunch of French theory, and then I watched The Matrix, and I was like, oh, this is okay. Yeah, see, <laughs> like, The this- Matrix was my favorite movie when I was five years old, so <laughs> I, like, had a real head start. I was like, everything's uh, fake. This isn't impressive like, well, to me. Baby, Edward. Uh, yeah. I didn't realize until I was, like, 20 and reading the copy of Simulacron Simulation that I bought from the used bookstore by my dad's house. Oh, and I was no. like, I was like, damn, everything's a simulation. It's all, it's all, I don't know. And I played like too much video games as a kid. So I was like, damn, this all makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> you live in a Disney it. World parking lot. <laughs> exactly. This is all Disney World parking lot. Uh, my crush, I guess, when I was a young and was Barta, Death of an author. Wow. Because uh, he was he was the first guy to tell me that that I mattered. That there that yeah. there is no Kurt Vonnegut, that there is no David Foster Wallace, that it's just <laughs> that it's just me. That Little old Nick. There is no David Foster just Wallace. Another, just another straight white guy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. That's what it was. You matter, Nick. You exactly. Matter. 
first person to tell me that I'm at her. Or <laughs> maybe the, the I don't know. Metamorphosis when I was 18 and like literally just cried so much. I was like, this is so good and life is awful. I feel so alienated. And then I read the trial imme- immediately after and like closed the back page and was like, everything is serious. This is so sad. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then, and I, you know, it's just been stuck in me ever since. But, and you uh, just opened it up to Hegel? Yeah. And then it just, but yeah. When I was in when I was an undergrad, I took a philosophy class, and the person who taught it did not understand Hegel at all. And I actually thought Hegel was a fucking. I was like, Hegel has to be the dumbest philosopher of all time. And then like, <laughs> and then uh, before coming to UVM, like over the summer, I read like the Recognitions by Gaddis, and was like, all right, this sounds pretty cool. Like, what's going on with Hegel? And then now I like it. So here you are. The evolution. Yeah. <laughs> the metamorphosis, if right. you will. A metamorphosis. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes back. All right. Well, all happy right. Aries season, y'all. Happy Aries season. Um, good to see everybody. See you next time for send us a, season. Send us a question at hegelisavirgo at gmail.com. Yep. We'll get back to you. 
We'll get back to you. And we'll probably talk about Mark next time, I imagine. Yeah. Oh, is it next? Is next? Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, but who's to say, really? Who's to say? Maybe okay. none of us will be alive in a month. <laughs> Look. Jesus, Jeffrey. At least one of us might not be. Who knows? Who knows? Well, one, in, one out of, like, four people are going to have coronavirus. So, of the people on my screen, which is right now Amelia, Edward, Annika, and Jeffrey, because Nick hasn't <laughs> spoken in a minute, one of you. I'm convinced... Are- I'm convinced that I've already, that I'm asymptomatic because Issa worked like three days in a row with somebody who tested positive for it. So like, and that was like two weeks ago. So chances are I, I probably, I'm just like asymptomatic of it. So there we go. I feel pretty good. Uh, thanks, Esther, for being the special guest. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.